you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. At least as far back as the time of the Greek physician Hippocrates, the toxic properties of arsenic were known. This didn't prevent its use as a medicinal compound, however. It had useful effects, and as long as it was used in moderation, negative effects didn't often take place. It was used by Hippocrates to treat abscesses, and later, some early treatments for both leukemia and syphilis involved arsenic compounds. But of course, it's the darker side of arsenic that's more commonly known. It's use in poisonings and murder throughout history. Arsenic poisoning skyrocketed in the latter years of the 19th century as high concentrations of the substance became more easily available through pesticides and even household products like flypaper and certain kinds of wallpaper. Arsenic poisoning isn't necessarily hard to detect, but it can be easily passed off as any number of medical ailments. And of course, human nature dictated that many poisoning cases had a financial motive. In the late 1930s, an extensive network of poisoners who utilized arsenic and hemlock to poison their victims, as well as more crude types of murder, like drowning, beating, and -and hit-and-run accidents, was revealed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Because of the chosen poisons, the deaths often resembled those caused by more mundane causes, such as gastroenteritis or pneumonia. It was with a plain, run-of-the-mill, and coincidental occurrence that the following story came to light. On June 30, 1938, a Delaware ex-con named George Myers was introduced to Herman Petrillo in Philadelphia by a friend he knew from his time in prison. He needed $25 for supplies for the business he ran. Then, as Myers said, he asked me why stop at $25 when I had a chance to make $500. So I asked him what his proposition was, and he told me to bump off a guy. Petrillo provided him with a length of metal pipe that he said Myers should use to beat to death the target of the plan, Ferdinand Alfonsi. Ferdinand Alfonsi was a former cement mixer from the Port Richmond area of northeast Philadelphia. At some point, he had lost his job, and he went to work for the Depression-era Works Progress Administration, or WPA. It seems that coinciding with a job loss, 
he became abusive toward his wife, Stella. Petrillo told Myers that it had all been planned out that his wife would take the couple's two children to nearby Bristol and would drape a towel over a fence at the home to signal him that the husband was home alone. This done, Myers should get into the home, beat Ferdinand to death with a pipe, and then throw the body down the stairs so that the death would look accidental. Simple. Myers accepted the money, but instead of killing Alfonsi, went to the Secret Service. See, Petrillo had a reputation as a passer of counterfeit money. It's not made exactly clear, but I'm guessing that George Myers had been working with the Secret Service for a little while. His arrest in 1927 that landed him in jail in Wilmington, Delaware, was for forgery, and I'm half wondering if there was some sort of deal worked out, because he didn't actually go to jail for very long. My guess is the Secret Service was already on to Petrillo for his counterfeiting. Anyway, George Myers turned the counterfeit money he had received into William Lanvoit, chief of the Secret Service's Philadelphia office. Lanvoit both assigned some of his own agents to investigate the counterfeit angle and also forwarded the information Myers had provided to the assistant district attorney, Vincent P. McDevitt. George Myers went back to Herman Petrillo saying that the hit job on Alfonsi really required two people. Petrillo agreed to this proposition, and so an ex-con friend of Myers's from New York, New Jersey, who was actually a Secret Service agent named Stanley Phillips, entered the equation. Myers and Phillips managed to stall Petrillo for several months while the cases were being built, during which time Petrillo put forward several alternative methods through which they could kill Ferdinand such as drowning or running a maneuver with a car. Only once during the whole affair, on September 5th, did Myers actually ever meet Mrs. Alfonsi. But on September 23rd, Petrillo became impatient and said they needed to kill Alfonsi then. When they got to the Alfonsi home and saw the towel on the fence that had been prearranged, the police formally had the circumstantial evidence they needed to at least make it seem plausible that Stella Alfonsi was also involved in the murder plot, upon which they delayed it again. But by this time, as chance would have it, Ferdinand Alfonsi had already been admitted to the hospital to be treated for apparent poisoning. George Myers said that Herman Petrillo took responsibility for this, saying that the fools in the hospital think he has got influenza or pneumonia. I gave him enough arsenic to kill six men. The poison was apparently administered through sandwiches made by his wife. As chance would have it, Alfonsi's foreman at work, Charles Houck, became ill after a sandwich was shared with him. After another doctor detected arsenic in Alfonsi's system, Philadelphia detectives Anthony Franchetti and Michael Schwartz questioned him and determined that multiple insurance policies were, pl were placed on him by his wife. The detectives felt they had what they needed, and on September 24, 1938, they arrested both Herman Petrillo and Stella Alfonsi on charges of attempted murder. About a month later, on October 27, these charges were upgraded when Ferdinand died. Suspicions were also raised about a cousin of Herman's, a man named Paul Petrillo, who ran a tailor shop on East Pass Yonk Avenue in South Philadelphia. 
He seemed to have a bit of a reputation as a mystic in the Italian-American community, supposedly having powers of divination and the malocchio, or evil eye, as well as trafficking in all manner of magical charms and potions. There was nothing to back the suspicions up, however. Though it's changed hands several times since the late 1930s, and though Paul Petrillo is long dead, the shop at 1822 East Pass Yonk Avenue is still a tailor's. Detective Samuel Riccardi noted that a habitual customer of the shop, one Karina Favato, had had at least two sudden deaths in her family as well. Both her husband, Charles Ingrao, and her stepson, Philip, had died. By way of another weird coincidence, the mortician who had been preparing the body of Ferdinand Alfonsi for burial had also prepared the body of Philip Ingrao. She confirmed that many of the physical signs of poisoning noted on Alfonsi's corpse were present on the body of Philip as well. On October 29, 1938, the bodies of both Charles and Philip Ingrao were exhumed and examined for poison. At least Philip's body tested positive for arsenic. And on November 2nd, Karina Favato was arrested as well. Detective Michael Schwartz later testified that life insurance policies totaling $9,000 had been taken out on Charles Ingrao. All this money went to Karina Favato, though one of the policies was taken out in her maiden name. George McCann, the insurance agent in Ingrao's case, said that when he first went to the home to investigate the claim immediately upon Charles' death, Herman Petrillo was there and asked him to insure Philip Ingrao as well. Mrs. Favato's stepson was insured for $9,500. It soon came to light that a neighbor of Karina Favato's, another WPA worker named Giuseppe DiMartino, who had died on February 4, 1937, had also tested positive for arsenic. The death of DiMartino seemed suspicious from the start, however, and the insurance company refused to pay out the $4,000 worth of insurance policies that had been taken out on his life as a result no less than eight separate policies. This prompted an angry visit to the offices by his wife, Assunta Di Martino, as well as Karina Favato and Stella Alfonsi. Mrs. Di Martino could not speak English very well, and Mrs. Alfonsi acted as her interpreter, Benjamin Corrin of the insurance company testified. Both she and Mrs. Favato were quite angry and demanded that the policies be paid out. I told them that we were suspicious about the case and were investigating it, but if they want it, they could have the premiums on the policies back. They agreed to take the premiums, and we gave back $125 on one policy and $496 on the other. Karina Favato, by the way, was also beneficiary in one of the policies on DiMartino's life and stood to gain $2,000 upon his death. Favato was charged with the murder of Philip Ingrao. The DiMartino murder, in turn, was tied back to Herman Petrillo as well. Another insurance agent, Dominic Carigliano, who said that on several occasions before Petrillo had informed us of prospective insurance clients, said that he was asked by Petrillo why they were not paying on the DiMartino claim, telling Carigliano that Mrs. DiMartino was poor and needed the money. In January of 1939, George Myers received at least two letters at his home threatening his life if he showed up in court to testify. 
Listen, George. One read. Stay out of the courthouse, and you and your wife get out of Philadelphia by Monday, January 9th, or we will get the two of you. You have been warned. Both letters were assembled in stereotypical anonymous letter fashion, from letters clipped from magazines and newspapers, and both were postmarked Philadelphia. The Philadelphia police were rapidly uncovering a massive conspiracy, a huge murder-for-hire plot reminiscent of the 17th century affair of the poisons in Paris, both because of the deaths themselves, as well as the undercurrents of mysticism and witchcraft. But it wasn't done yet. On February 10th, Paul Petrillo, the inoffensive-looking, bespectacled middle-aged tailor, was arrested. The police had contacted a prisoner in New York's Sing Sing prison, John Cacapardo, also known as John King, who was Paul Petrillo's nephew. They had first become aware of Cacapardo when they began their investigation. He was in prison for murder, serving 30 years, having been convicted in 1937 in the shooting death of 29-year-old Molly Storacci. Cacapardo and Storacci had been having an affair, with her leaving him when she discovered he had a wife and two kids. Shortly afterwards, Cacapardo showed up at Storacci's home in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, with a gun. Molly ended up being shot, with Cacapardo at the time saying he intended on committing suicide, and that he and Paul Petrillo, who was there for some reason, fought over the gun, which discharged during the struggle. Paul Petrillo, meanwhile, testified against Cacapardo that he had simply shot Molly Storacci in cold blood. Cacapardo had formerly lived with Paul Petrillo and worked in his tailor shop. He said he'd set me up in business. When I asked him what sort of business he had in mind, he told me that he had a certain person insured, he told the court. Later on, he pointed the man out and said I should be friendly enough that I should take him places now and then for a few drinks. When I got friendly with him, I was to put a powder in his beer at the right time. He said he'd give me $500 out of the man's insurance and share it with me. This man was later identified as Anthony Gambino. Cacapardo said that the tailor had also implicated himself in the murder of a woman named Mary Gesso in Jersey City. This is a murder to which no reference aside from Petrillo's statement can be found, however. It either never happened or wasn't reported. The story of the accidental shooting of Molly Storacci was the version of Cacapardo's defense that ended up coming out in New York court. However, during preparations for his trial, he told a more convoluted story to his lawyer, who advised his client not to go with that defense, as it seemed more unlikely, and in his opinion, it wouldn't be believed by a jury. Originally, Cacapardo had claimed that Paul Petrillo came to him with a plan. He had insured Molly's stepfather, Dominic Storacci, for $10,000. The plan was to kill Storacci and get the money, with $5,000 going to Petrillo and $5,000 to Cacapardo. Cacapardo, not wanting to become involved in murdering his girlfriend's stepfather, refused this proposal, saying if anything happens to Dominic Storacci, I will expose you. I will tell everything I know. Upon this, he said, Paul Petrillo tried to kill him. Petrillo and his mistress, Rose Carina, went to New York in January of 1937 and directly to the Storacci home. Cacapardo followed. 
This story had it that he showed up at the house to confront his uncle before he could kill Dominic. Then, as he had said during his defense, the two struggled and Molly was accidentally shot. When the Philadelphia police caught wind of the story, in light of events there, the suspicions already raised, and especially the fact that Paul was the cousin of Herman Petrillo, it didn't seem like it actually was that far-fetched after all. Far from it, in fact. Wiretaps were placed on Petrillo's phone and the phones of no associates. The tailor shop was searched as well. The police misinterpreted a directive of ADA McDevitt, however, and arrested Petrillo before any definitive evidence could be obtained. This led ADA McDevitt to charge him with conspiracy to commit murder, as he thought this charge, at least, would stick. March 22, 1939, saw the arrest of Assunta DiMartino, the wife of Giuseppe DiMartino. She was indicted for murder. The next day, both Herman Petrillo and Stella Alfonsi were charged with first-degree murder and the death of Ferdinand Alfonsi. Stella Alfonsi, however, was later acquitted on October 27th of the same year. A witness for the prosecution in the case against Petrillo, a Dr. Henry D'Alonzo, testified that the defendant had attempted to buy live typhoid germs from him for $300. In May 1939, D'Alonzo received threatening letters telling him to stop cooperating with the police or be killed. On April 20th, Karina Favado, who had previously pled not guilty to the murder of Philip Ingrao, reversed her plea in the wake of evidence provided by Mrs. DiMartino. Favado also confessed to the murder of her husband Charles Ingrao. She had initially confessed to the murder of her neighbor Giuseppe DiMartino as well, but, as, but called as a witness was Assunta DiMartino, who testified that it was she who was responsible for her husband's death. After the conviction of Mrs. Favado, she made a three-day confession to police, giving them the names of many other members of the so-called poison ring. On April 26th, in the wake of the confessions of Karina Favado, several more arrests were made. These were Josephine Romaldo, born in Brazil, arrested for the death of her husband Antonio, who had died in 1936 of what was thought at the time to be pneumonia, Agnes Mandiuk, suspected of having killed her husband Roman in 1932, Marie Wallachin, whose husband John had been killed in 1936, in an apparent hit-and-run in Germantown, and Amadeo Maselli, who, according to Mrs. DiMartino, had poisoned her husband at her behest. Warrants were also issued for Morris Bulber, a Russian also known as Louis the Rabbi, and Rose Karina. A man named Cesare Valeni was also sought. Valeni, a former heavyweight boxer and reputedly a member of the Mafia back in Italy, was, as chance would have it, already serving time in Rikers Island. Charged with assault and battery for beating a man in New York, he was actually to be released on May 1st, but instead of freedom, was greeted by Philadelphia police with extradition papers. He was charged as an accomplice in the murder of John Wallachin. April 29th was an eventful day for the Poison Ring investigations. First, the bodies of Antonio Romaldo, Roman Mandiuk, and John Wallachin were exhumed on the orders of ADA McDevitt. Romaldo and Mandiuk were to test positive for arsenic. When Romaldo's widow Josephine was questioned, she replied, 
I am completely innocent. It is true that I am a believer in Hex, and have been all my life. About ten years ago, I went to a doctor because I felt I was losing my husband's love. I was given a powder to put on his necktie, in his hair, and on his shoes. It didn't work, and then about two years before my husband died, I heard about the reputation of Mrs. Karina Favato, who lived in my neighborhood. I went to her and told her my husband was acting strange and cool toward me. She put the eye on me and told me I was under a spell and that everything would be all right again between me and my husband. She told me to leave it to her, but to send my husband around. I did. She gained his confidence by hiring him to do odd jobs around her house. Mrs. Favato fed him, but the treatment didn't work. I went back to her and told her my husband was still cool toward me. Mrs. Favato said, Now I'm going to start a love potion. She showed me a bottle filled with liquid. She told me it wouldn't harm him and gave me a spoonful to prove it. It had no effect on me. But after that, he started failing in health and then he died. I know nothing about how or why he died. That same day, a man named Raphael Pulselli appeared before police and turned himself in. He confessed to having a part in the deaths of both Charles and Philip Ingrao and Giuseppe Di Martino. All these years I have been an errand boy for Mrs. Favato, he confessed. It was I who went to Herman Petrillo and paid him $300 for poison to kill Di Martino. I got the money from Amadeo Maselli. I handed Maselli the poison, and after the insurance was collected, we collected a percentage. It was I who went to Petrillo and bought the poison which Mrs. Favato used to kill Philip Ingrao and his father Charles Favato. While in prison, Karina Favato attempted suicide, trying to strangle herself with a handkerchief and then to tear her wrist open with a pin. And detectives brought into custody a typewriter salesman and former veterinary student named David Brandt. Brandt was an associate of the one at Morris Bulber and was questioned accordingly. Though not initially charged, as at this time the police had nothing to tie him to, Brandt eventually would be tied to several of the deaths. On May 1st, Morris Bulber turned himself in. He had moved to Brooklyn from Philadelphia some two years before and was operating a delicatessen there. He and the salesman David Brandt were charged with complicity in the death of Roman Mandiuk. However, he denied any association with, with the poison ring run by the Petrillos, but was held without bail until a hearing May 22nd. Rose Carina was still a fugitive, however. I found it a bit humorous that I found it pointed out several times that when Morris Bulber was first brought in, he not only denied any murders, but made it clear that he was not a religious official. Probably some newspaper somewhere, seizing on his nickname, was reporting that a rabbi had been arrested, and he wanted to make it clear that he was not, in fact, a rabbi. The next day, the case was finally broken wide open as Herman Petrillo began to talk. The arsenic and hemlock mixture they used he called witch's brew. $300 was the price for a pint of the toxin, procured mainly by women wishing to be rid of their husbands, though a few men were implicated as well. He said they got the poison from David Brandt, who procured it from a doctor whose name he didn't know. Following questioning of David Brandt, police raided the offices of Dr. Horace Perlman 
an obstetrician who had been practicing medicine in the city for over 20 years. Perlman was arrested and held without bail on charges of accessory before and after homicide. Drugs and files were seized from the office as well. It was at this time noted that several of the key players had become ill, among them Karina Favado, jo- Josephine Romaldo, Marie Wallachin, Agnes Mandiuk, Asuna DiMartino, and Paul Petrillo. It was later found that many of these had been poisoned with a fairly weak dose of arsenic. Whether they poisoned themselves or had somehow been poisoned by others was unclear, however. Of those, Josephine Romaldo was sentenced to death, and she spent two years on death row before her sentence was commuted to life in 1941 by Governor Arthur James. Marie Wallachin's case was dismissed, as nothing could be proven. Agnes Mandioc was sentenced to life in prison. Asuna Di Martino was sentenced to 3 to 20 years in prison. Also arrested May 5th was a landlady named Christine Cerrone. Cerrone was found to have been beneficiary in several life insurance policies that had been taken out on her crippled uncle, Rafael Caruso. In 1934, Caruso had been beaten to death and thrown into the Schuylkill River. There also seemed to be implications that Herman Petrillo was involved in this death as well, a non-existent Herman Caruso being named beneficiary of another policy. Cerrone quickly turned in another part of the conspiracy, Samuel Sortino. Sortino, she said, was the man who actually did the killing. Christine Cerrone pleaded not guilty May 25th, but Sortino pled guilty and confessed to the crime. Herman Petrillo was also charged in this murder. The title of the episode is a quote from Herman Petrillo to Samuel Sortino in reference to this killing, mentioned in court transcripts. Christine Cerrone was sentenced to 2 to 20 years in prison. Arrested the same day was 45-year-old former New York resident Anna Arena, suspected of orchestrating the murder of her husband Joseph in July 1932. He had been injured in a fall from a scaffold and had been an invalid for a number of years. Joseph, along with Dominic Rodeo and Steve Crispino, was out in a boat drinking and fishing off Sea Isle City, New Jersey. At one point, Arena stood up, tumbled out of the boat, and though Rodeo and Crispino held out an oar to attempt to help him out of the water, he didn't take it and drowned. The death seemed to be accidental at the time, but when Anna Arena was named by Herman Petrillo, the case was reopened and she was picked up. Also implicated was an insurance agent named Jaitano Cicinotti, who made $200 upon Joseph Arena's death. The majority of the rest of the money went to the Petrillos, Mrs. Arena only receiving $300. Crispino was arrested in Reading a few days later. However, the cases against Anna Arena, Jaitano Cicinotti, and Steve Crispino had to be dismissed, as they were only charged with conspiracy and the killing of Joseph Arena fell out this fell outside of the statute of limitations on that charge. Rose Davis was indicted, along with Morris Bulber and Paul Petrillo, in the death of her bedridden first husband, Luigi Lavecchio. The insurance agent implicated in the Arena murder, Jaitano Cicinotti, was also held as an accessory. In 1931, Paul Petrillo took out a 
$2,370 life insurance policy on the life of Lavecchio, naming Rose as beneficiary. Shortly after Paul Petrillo visited Lavecchio, he came down with what is diagnosed as what was diagnosed as gastroenteritis. It was eventually proven, however, that none of the money actually went to Mrs. Davis, as what didn't go to Petrillo was used to pay the undertaker, and as the undertaker was provided by Petrillo, essentially that money went to him as well. Though she had initially pled guilty, with him being the main one to profit from the death, and by Davis's own admission the one most responsible for the actual murder, she was charged as an accomplice. The woman's current husband, John Davis, also found that he was heavily insured by his wife and had been severely ill recently. Also held was the oldest of the Black Widows, 62-year-old chicken dealer Dora Sherman, whose husband Abraham had died of apparent heart disease, but who again, like Arena, was named by Herman Petrillo. However, when he was exhumed, it was confirmed that he had in fact, died of natural causes, possibly confirming assertions by her children that she had only interacted with Morris Bulber to try to obtain some sort of magical charm for her grandson. As a result, Mrs. Sherman was discharged. One of the few men charged directly as one of the poisoners, Joseph Schwartz, was accused on suspicion of having poisoned his mother-in-law, Lena Winkleman. When Winkleman's body was exhumed, it was discovered that she had, in fact, been poisoned, and Schwartz was put on trial in December of 1939. Dr. Eugene Swain was called, and he said that as far back as 1935, a year before Winkleman's death, Schwartz had asked him whether arsenic or strychnine could be mixed with milk. When Swain questioned him as to why he was asking, Schwartz said nothing for a few moments, but then asked the doctor to lend him a book on toxicology. Swain weirded out by this point, finished his business, and left. Captain James Kelly summed up in court, Schwartz admits that he could not get along with his mother-in-law because both were irritable and nervous, and when she became ill, he substituted a poison he obtained in capsules which had been obtained for legitimate treatment. He removed the caps from the capsules and inserted the poison. There were about six capsules, and Mrs. Winkleman took them all over a period of about six hours. She died shortly thereafter. This was in July 1936. Schwartz was eventually found to be insane by Dr. John Stauffer of Philadelphia General Hospital. The insanity was only temporary, however, and he was sentenced to life in Moya Mensing Prison on June 14, 1940. On May 9th, Camilla known in news accounts as Millie, Jacoby was arrested on suspicion in the death of her abusive husband Antonio. When his body was exhumed, he had been poisoned, unsurprisingly. Found was an amount far in excess of the usual amount of arsenic found in poisoning cases. Millie Jacoby attempted suicide twice the day she was arrested. She confessed complicity in Antonio's death, but maintained that it was Paul Petrillo who actually murdered him. Furthermore, she said she feared Paul had poisoned her as well, and that he had taken out a $1,000 life insurance policy on her. Nonetheless, she was found guilty and sentenced to life. In 1941, she attempted to mount a retrial, as it was found that a doctor called to see her husband shortly before his death 
had written him a prescription. But when this prescription was investigated, it proved to be legitimate and the conviction was upheld. Things were relatively quiet on the investigation front for several days, until on May 13th, Lieutenant James Kelly, Detective Anthony Franchetti, and ADA Vincent McDevitt went to Brooklyn to follow up on some leads concerning Morris Bulber. Brooklyn DA William F.X. Gagan was quick to note that this was just an investigative visit and no crimes had taken place. The same day, back in Philadelphia, Police following up on connections of Dr. Perlman's arrested a 60-year-old woman named Josephine Gagliardi, who was questioned but not charged. Also brought into the station was a politician named Joseph Pepe. Pepe was not formally charged, although he had been acquainted with both Morris Bulber and Paul Petrillo. I first met Paul Petrillo in 1932, he said when questioned. I went to his tailor shop on Pass Yonk Avenue to get a suit. He suggested I get him insurance prospects. When I refused, he said, Well, we've got the evil eye on your brothers and sisters, and they're dying. The only way they can be saved is by our breaking of the spell. We won't break the spell unless you do what we tell you. I went out and got maybe 11 prospects for insurance. He was later released without charge, however. Darkly humorous signs were placed on East Past Junk Avenue near Paul Petrillo's tailor shop. Some renamed the street Arsenic Lane. Others bore cartoons depicting Paul selling arsenic or delivering it to prospective clients. Still others read, Arsenic Stops Mother-in-Law Trouble. For details, see inside. On May 15th, the government stepped in. The FBI assisted the Philadelphia police in tracking down those suspects who had fled the city, Rose Carina and Dominic Rodeo. As the federal investigators mobilized their forces, a man named Dominic Carafa was brought into custody. Carafa was believed to have burned down the home of Herman Petrillo. A few years before, the house next door to Dr. Horace Perlman's had also been bombed. It was thought that possibly insurance fraud of another sort was also going on, or possibly black hand-style extortion tactics. In Carafa's case, it could have easily been merely the destruction of a notorious figure's property that often takes place. There's no mention of the outcome of the case, however. The FBI arrested Dominic Rodeo, won it in connection with the killing of Joseph Arena, in Cleveland, Ohio on May 17th. Unlike the others charged in the murder, whose cases had already been dismissed because of a technicality, Rodeo was said to be the only was said to be the one who actually drowned Arena, and there was no statute of limitations on murder. The state sought the death penalty, but clemency was recommended, and he was instead sentenced to life. Named in the confessions of Herman Petrillo, as well as papers seized from the offices of Dr. Perlman and Morris Bulber, were several other deceased people who were exhumed and examined. These were the bodies of Jenny Pino, who had died in Salem, New Jersey, and David Smigel. Rose Smigel Schenkelman, again since remarried, was brought in for questioning, and like Dora Sherman, though, she was released when the body of her ex-husband tested negative for the presence of poison. Jenny Pino's husband, Jaytano, had died only days before. Grace Giovanetti's first husband, Pietro, Pietro Paroli, died seemingly of myocarditis in 1935, 
However, when his body was exhumed, it was found to contain enormous amounts of arsenic. He had formerly been treated by a local witch named Josephine Sedita. Paroli had gotten better on that occasion and took out an insurance policy on himself which in gratitude he made Sedita beneficiary of. It was claimed that Josephine Sedita was the one who poisoned Mr. Paroli and that she hounded Grace about the proceeds of the insurance policy thereafter. Grace said that Josephine had also hinted at taking care of her current husband, Rocco Giovanetti. She also implicated Rose Carina in the death. Grace received the death sentence on, April, on September 28, 1939, and had a heart attack only a half hour after sentence. She was granted a retrial in 1941, the death sentence being reversed. She was sentenced to five to ten years in prison. Josephine Sedita was a fugitive for years and was not found until 1945. Though she had initially been charged in the death of Pietro Paroli, the death of witnesses in the intervening time meant she could no longer be tried on that count. In the end, she pled guilty to, to obtaining money through false pretenses and practicing medicine without a license, and was jailed at the Muncie Women's Industrial Home. Finally, on May 18th, Rose Carina was discovered in New York City. She was swiftly sent back to Philadelphia for arraignment, staying completely silent in the courtroom of Judge Harry McDevitt when finally charged with the murder of her ex-husband Pietro Stia. In June 1939, the final case came to light when Dominic Cassetti was arrested. His wife, Jenny Cassetti, had been exhumed during the last round of examination of corpses and was found to have been poisoned. Cassetti claimed that the aforementioned Josephine Sedita and another woman refused, reputed to have mystical powers, Providenza Makichi, used a magical ceremony in the cellar of Makichi's home to convince him to poison his wife, threatening him with the evil eye and supposed spiritual retribution if he did not sprinkle a powder on her food. Makichi claimed that she was paid $150 after Jenny Cassetti's death, which she gave to Morris Bulber. She claimed the entire thing had been Bulber's plan all along. Sedita, as earlier described, turned fugitive for years and was not charged in the Cassetti murder. David Brandt, earlier arrested, was implicated in the Cassetti case and convicted of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to two and a half to twenty years. Finally, Dominic Cassetti was sentenced to life in October of 1940. But beyond the murders in Philadelphia, there were persistent rumors that some deaths, which occurred in other states and cities, were connected to the ring. On September 1, 1939, a 31-year-old woman named Rose Cirilli was arrested in Wilmington, Delaware, charged with the murder of her husband Salvatore. Salvatore was a heavy drinker, and she admitted that she had received from Paul Petrillo a powder to sprinkle on his food which would cause him to stop drinking. The powder, of course, was arsenic. Petrillo was also charged. On December 14, 1939, Rose Cirilli was convicted of involuntary manslaughter, it being decided she had no desire to actually murder her husband, and that the powder was, so far as she knew, used only to stop his drinking. She was sentenced to five years in jail. I'm uncertain whatever came of Petrillo's charge in this case. In 1936, 
a man named Adam Ambrose from Cape May, New Jersey, was held in the poison deaths of Clement Mises and Joseph Cutson, both former soldiers and a man named Williams. Ambrose's son Bruno was also held as an accessory. All three murders were to collect on insurance policies taken out on the victims. Upon arrest, Ambrose led police to a spot on the beach where a man named Joe was buried. Adam claimed that the man was a part of an elaborate plot to fake his death and collect the $10,000 insurance money he had on his own life. Ambrose killed himself in jail on January 11th. It was thought to be connected to the poison ring, both because of the location, Cape May is very near Sea Isle City where Arena was killed, and the general murder for insurance angle. Coincidentally, Detective Samuel Riccardi consulted on this case as well. Of the major players in the Philadelphia Poison Syndicate, Paul Petrillo was executed at precisely 12.34 a.m. on March 31, 1941 at Rockview Penitentiary in Belfont. His cousin Herman followed on October 20th of the same year, also at Rockview. Morris Bulber was sentenced to life in prison, served at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, dying in 1954. Rose Carina was acquitted of the murder of Pietro Stia. She was freed on bail in 1940. Dr. Horace Perlman, who had steadfastly maintained his innocence, finally pled guilty in February 1940 to second-degree murder in the case of Jenny Pino. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in jail. Judge Edwin Lewis told Dr. Perlman during sentencing, In view of the testimony, I think you should have been electrocuted, but as the Commonwealth has said it has a weak case, I agree to the second-degree decision. And Karina Favado was also sentenced to life at the Muncie Women's Industrial Home, the same institution where Josephine Sedita would be sentenced. She died in 1952. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew. Signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.